January. Ugh. The festive celebrations are a distant memory. New Year's resolutions don't seem as attractive as they did on the 31st of December. And if you're escaping it all with a good book, TV show or movie, you are not alone. This is Life Solved from the University of Portsmouth. And today we're hearing about the research of Professor Lincoln Geraghty, who's been studying the cultural role of fandom and our favourite film franchises. So these films often stand out as important sort of cultural markers or barometers for moments, both personally in our lives, but maybe in the sort of history of the industry or history of society. In this episode, we'll find out how the stories and characters we love can stay alive for us, connect us, and enrich our lives and societies generation after generation. When the thing is not on TV or film screens, you just don't forget about it because the sort of world has drawn you in. So then you read the novels, you read the comic books, and then if a game comes out, you play the video game. And that sort of keeps you in the world. And so that fandom becomes a sort of much more long-lived experience. It's not just one-off. So when they release a new series, then, of course, your fandom is renewed and you're brought back into that world. Is the movie franchise a cynical money-making machine? Can it endure a fast-consumption, multi-platform, on-demand binge culture? Can it actually be a vital part of making our world a better place in tough times? Let's find out in this episode of Life Solved. Lincoln Geraghty is Professor of Media Cultures in the Film, Media and Communication School here at the University of Portsmouth. From his own passion for sci-fi, born of early years brushes with Star Wars and E.T., he's made the business of film and TV fans his business. It's about the potential to thrill, the potential to scare, potential to excite. Let's start by explaining what we mean when we talk about a franchise in the context of film. Brace yourself for a brief history. The history of the franchise goes back to the birth of cinema itself, the early 1910s. It's silent movies as a way of getting people to regularly come out to the cinema. Serials or serial film, I'm thinking The Perils of Pauline, if you've ever heard that, was a way of getting people regularly to come to the cinema, often using the idea of cliffhangers to get people coming back. Now, you could argue that is more of a sort of soap operatic format. It's about continuing the story through a series of parts. But it was, you could argue, a proto-early franchise because it had merchandise. You know, it, it sold things that people could buy outside the cinema. You could buy Perils of Pauline sheet music and listen to the soundtrack at home. So you could argue these are early examples of the franchise. Universal Studios in the 1930s in Hollywood became known for making horror movies, the classics, Frankenstein, Dracula, The Wolfman. Not so much as to sort of a guaranteed way of making money, but as a way of protecting themselves against the bigger studios like Warner Brothers or Paramount. So they sort of identified themselves as making a particular type of movie, what you might call today a franchise of films with similar characters over time, and then bringing them together in like meetups or Dracula and Frankenstein meet the Wolfman type movies. This was a way of Universal's using those classic literary characters to bring people back to the cinema, build a name, they get a reputation for making those types of movies. So we see the birth of a franchise not just in Star Wars and, and Lord of the Rings, but much earlier in Hollywood film history. 
Certainly, in a British context, the Carry On films are a very popular and famous franchise that launched a number of famous actors or famous names that sort of stuck with us in our own cultural memory. They last several decades and had, of course, a lot of spin-offs. Fascinating stuff. So, a franchise is something that keeps you coming back for more iterations, might have merchandise associated with it, and it might be specialised in by a certain studio by way of asserting their identity or brand. Certainly, we're familiar with the merch side of it in modern-day contexts. If you could buy a kid's rucksack that doesn't have Wolverine or Spider-Man crawling across it, you're onto a rare thing. So far, Lincoln's described an Anglo-American context for franchises. But he says that franchise fandom and community is actually a global phenomenon. If you cast your eye to other parts of the world, the franchise as a model has been very successfully mapped out over a number of decades. I'm thinking particularly of one of my other sort of guilty pleasures, Pokemon. Go to Japan and Pokemon dominates. It's a mega franchise that's not just film. In many ways, film is the least important part of the Pokemon franchise. It's games, it's trading cards, handheld device games, cosplay. It's all those things that you would associate with a fan community, but it comes from a completely different sort of cultural background. So actually, the franchise does work as a popular media strategy outside of Hollywood. And indeed, you could argue that Pokemon has done it much more successfully than others because it has adapted over time. It's not just stuck with one thing. You see Pokemon in different areas of sort of media entertainment through professional gaming now. You can become the Pokemon world champion and get paid a lot of money for it and travel the world based on that. And actually, that might be something that, that Disney would like to move into next because it, that sort of idea of gaming is not quite what Disney's into at the moment. But Pokemon as a sort of successful franchise shows that it works in a non-traditional, or I suppose, non-Anglo-American context. Before we get lost in the money-making or brand-building machinations of film studios, Lincoln is quick to point out that the most important elements in keeping films and film franchises alive are the fans themselves. Big film franchises last a long time because of fans, and fans take films very seriously. If you ever got into a heated debate around what trilogy is the best Star Wars trilogy down the pub at any point in time. And think some of the big film franchises which develop cultures of their own, like Lord of the Rings, Star Wars, the Marvel MCU, of course. The fans are attracted to these really massive franchises because of the sort of storylines and how those storylines spread across a number of years. The Marvel what? The Marvel MCU, of course. That's the Marvel Cinematic Universe. To the uninitiated, a whole realm of characters, stories, and interconnected superhero narratives born of the original Marvel comic books. Obviously, without the comic book stories, the Avengers Cinematic Universe would not exist. They're based on the classic 60s comic book series from Marvel. So they do have potential source material to adapt. That's quite beneficial because then you get this sort of cross-fertilization of audiences. In the same way, there have now been more than 10 Star Wars movies with multiple TV follow-ons. And the Lord of the Rings trilogy of films have spawned multiple spin-offs too. Classic literary texts such as Lord of the Rings as a sort of source material for Peter Jackson's trilogy, it's actually quite faithfully followed in terms of a proper adaptation because the fandom... The community around the books, I suppose, wouldn't accept anything less. They want a more faithful adaptation. 
But as Lincoln says, once fans fall in love with characters or become immersed in another world and its rules, there is always hunger for more. Fans grow to love characters, particular characters in the MCU like Iron Man, or of course, older characters we've seen in things like Star Wars, such as Han Solo, Luke Skywalker, they become quite iconic and fans sort of grow up with them and it becomes a part of their daily sort of lived culture. It's not just big mainstream fan films as well. If you think about cult movies, cult movies like comedies, horrors, science fiction films, they also attract what you might call a film culture because of the way people come together often to watch them socially, either in cinemas, but maybe at special film festivals, exhibitions or a secret cinema even uh, that pops up around London or any town that you might have gone to see a secret cinema screening where people come together and even maybe dress up, quote lines from the film, and just basically celebrate their love of that film. In a previous episode of Life Solved, which you can listen to on this podcast feed, Lincoln discussed his research into the ACA fans. That's uh, academics who are also fans of popular culture. And how the communities that spring up around a franchise culture can be a force for good. I'm interested in the community aspect of fandom. Fandom is about bringing people together around a shared love of a particular media text or a media personality, a celebrity, or indeed, as I said, a football team or any other popular culture entity that people see themselves in, but also see themselves sharing those likes with other people. So the community aspect is one that I find quite fascinating in my research. Again, personally, through my own sort of growing up as loving something beyond than just simply watching it, learning about characters in Star Wars, for example, takes me into reading about them. When I do research, I find out that people have written these stories, and then I look to see who else is writing these stories, and you start to sort of find out that there's other people that like this stuff. That's why they're so popular. And a lot of reasons why people become fans is the social aspect of things. It's about bringing people together. And once you sort of recognize that you like a film, then you start to love and appreciate the community for what it is. It becomes a social support system. It becomes a friendship circle. It becomes something more than the original text. And I think that's also quite fascinating. So when we talk about fandom, you could talk about its celebratory aspects. It's about the love of the text, but it's also about those aspects around community, such as social inclusion. It could be about feeling an affinity around political issues. And then that fandom grows into often something quite different to what it originally started as. They mean something so personal to each individual viewer, fan. And that personality that you see in a film obviously sticks with you over time. So you hold on to these sort of beloved objects and if they are threatened or you have to sort of defend them, as, as I said, down the pub with your mates or, or even take them more seriously like some academics do of film, then they become quite serious topics allied to politics because often films do stray into politics or they do stray into sort of culture and they stand as important markers for our society, for our times. They remind us of particular historical moments or movements. And although a franchise or recurring character might be iconic for their moment in time, it does lead to some debate when they endure decades of changing social norms. With the Bond franchise, regardless of the actor playing Bond, whether it be Pierce Brosnan, Roger Moore, my personal favourite, Sean Connery, you have the iconic Bond character standing out over time. And I guess this is why it's so heated and debated more more lately is does that character change along with the times 
if he does too much, then of course people might not go and see the next movie because it's not the same as it was before. So often franchises do lie in the sort of importance of the single character, regardless of the storyline or whether it continues or whether it's a, a sequel, a prequel, a sidequel or any sort of qual that there is out there. For any fan who's seen the latest Bond movie, that's a question that's weighing heavily on the mind. And whilst fan communities can influence the social remit of a franchise, they can also take their collective values forward in culture. Lincoln explains how the Harry Potter franchise united fans to do good for society. Regardless of authorship, Harry Potter as a character and the world of Harry Potter have inspired the fans to group together. A group called the Harry Potter Alliance, a web-based community, use the sort of love of that text and the character's inspiration as someone that stands up for the defenseless, the vulnerable. They use that as inspiration to run various charitable campaigns. They were campaigning for adult literacy, so they collected books that could be shared and sent round to communities to help that particular issue. They campaigned and raised money for free trade in different parts of Africa, and they've also campaigned for domestic violence causes and causes that support victims of domestic violence. So using Harry Potter to bring people together around these diverse issues is a way that fandom can work to help the community. Talk about Star Wars, there's a cosplay group called the 501 Squadron. They use people's love of Star Wars and they just go around with buckets and collect money at conventions and other events and they do very well out of it. They're a sort of a franchised fan group. So you have 501 squadrons all over the world. And more often than not, you see them at parades and festivals and various other charity events using Star Wars to raise money for local hospitals, local communities, etc. So there is a, a way that fandom can bring people together actively to concentrate on social issues, raise money for charity. There is a political activism as, as well, using some of these iconic characters to bring people together over very sort of personal but also political issues. General Leia was used as an icon for women standing up against sexism, misogyny in the sort of Trump presidency. So there's, a, again, a, a very iconic figure that means something very personal to a group of people, using that to inspire the next political campaign. It seems the fan community and its social context is in constant interplay with the culture of a franchise and how it moves with the times. If you head to the movies at a peak time of year, chances are you'll have the option to enjoy one of a never-ending stream of franchises. What's the connection between the way we're behaving as fans and potential fans and the phenomenon of franchises at the flicks? Hollywood's found a model that works. It's a model that they've developed and brought out time and time again, right from the beginning of early cinema. Often, particularly thinking about blockbuster franchises, those franchises that target particular seasons in the year where they release a movie in summer holidays or Christmas time, when they know people are more likely to go out and see them. That strategy has been around in Hollywood, again, since the 60s and 70s, really, as a way of getting people back into theatres. People were actually distracted. TV was a relatively new medium back in the 60s, and it was a competition for Hollywood cinema. So the birth of the blockbuster or the event movie in that period got Hollywood thinking. If you can draw people in once for a big movie like Star Wars, then the potential for a sequel or a third film in what you might call a franchise 
is that sort of regular guaranteed income every two or three years. So Hollywood as an industry, with studios being part of that industry, start to plan, well, if we have a hit, how do we follow it up? How do we keep people coming back for another segment of that story, of that film? And then alongside of it, again, many people credit George Lucas for this, what can we get people buying or collecting outside of the film? So toys, merch, and that becomes the sort of big strategy alongside the actual movie itself is to give people something they could keep as memory, something they could play with literally when the film's not there. That keeps people engaged. So when a new one comes out, they're even more ready for it and they're desperate for the sequel or the threequel. The beauty of franchises in the very simple way is they're able to tell a large and immersive story across multiple platforms. So film at the center, so like Endgame and the whole sort of Infinity War saga, but that also spawns what you might call paratext, TV series alongside, short films on the web, the merchandise, as I said. So that keeps people sort of engaged with the story beyond just the movie. So it adds to that longevity. And that story is just so big, it can't be contained in one film. So to tell the real story of Thanos' eventual demise, you have to chart that over 10, 15 movies. And then it becomes, as, as we know, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and it's chopped up in phases, and fans will know what phase leads into the other, and the whole sort of sequential story. If to really understand it and get it, you have to watch all those films in some sort of order. And if Iron Man's not there, then there's other characters you can follow and invest in into the next story, which at the moment they're charting out the, the whole Kang dynasty. But that also spawns what you might call paratext, sort of, TV series alongside, short films on the web, the merchandise, as I said. So that keeps people sort of engaged with the story beyond just the movie. So it adds to that longevity. And that sort of story is, is just so big. It, it can't be contained in one film. Now, certainly, Marvel, and particularly when they hire people like Kevin Feige, they hire someone like him who definitely maps a story, a central narrative out knowing which characters to bring in at particular moments. And, of course, building the Avengers storyline and building that team, they knew that they would have to do that over a series of films. So your Captain America movies, your Thor movies, including Hulk, Black Widow. So there was definitely a plan. With something, an older franchise like Bond, for example, that's more down to, did the last one make any money? Was it successful? Great. Okay, we'll adapt the next story in the Ian Fleming back catalogue in the Library of Fleming and see how that goes. So there isn't really that connection between movies. They just Bond standalone films. Although there was an attempt to thread a backstory, particularly around Bond's wife, the death of his wife, and what drives him as an individual. But in the Marvel films, as a modern-day transmedia story, the story is important because it connects all those different parts together, and they are seriously mapped out years in advance so we have the phases and we know that by the time phase six comes along in 2024 2025 we're going to get these characters and it's going to be this type of movie and the story's going in this direction when you look at it like that narrative planning is a work of sheer genius and keeping across all of it in detail would require the real passion of a super fan which perhaps comes back to Lingen's point that there's a difference between enjoying a movie and being a fan of its wider oeuvre. 
It sounds slightly sinister that human psychology plays such a big role in making something good, getting us hooked and keeping us hooked to make money. But perhaps it isn't surprising. In an increasingly competitive market for entertainment, movie studios need to keep pulling in the dollars to stay alive. That means they've been harnessing on-demand streaming platforms more and more as our viewing habits and our expectations change. I remember waiting for the next Star Trek episode, Next Generation, back in the 80s, which I could pick up from my local video store on VHS, two episodes a month. Can imagine stringing out, <laughs> viewing that over time. Now it's all knock it out in one night, all 24 episodes, bing, bang, binge, binge, binge. It's a bit of both. Streaming service absolutely have allowed sort of franchises to develop in some interesting ways, creative ways. Telling the backstory to a character through a TV series over six or seven episodes gives you much more time to dwell on what motivates that character, past traumas, that when you watch the film again, you think, ah, that's why they behaved that way. Take, it, I think, the series Andor at the moment on uh, Disney Plus for Star Wars, a character that had one outing in Rogue One, which was itself a prequel to the original Star Wars film. Actually, people are enjoying it quite well because it gives much more insight into the Andor character where he came from and why the resistance or the rebellion is so important. Streaming does a service to the narrative there. Sometimes it could mean a bit more resistance or exhaustion. There's just simply too much to watch and actually people get turned off. I think we're on this, what you might call fast franchise route. Everything is given to us. And in the moments when there's nothing there, there's the internet to feed our curiosity. Pre-internet, pre-regular releases, pre-blockbuster, you know, every other month. You had to put the time and effort in to go find out more. So that's why novels were so important in the sort of early Star Wars years, because there wasn't anything on TV or, or, or film. So actually the novels stood in as their sort of story fillers. And so there's actually quite a large group of Star Wars fans that still read the novels, and they're very much part of the Star Wars universe for them, because they grew up reading them. And they were those moments to fill the blanks when there was nothing on the big screen. Now where there's, there's something always on, it does threaten to tarnish that specialness of watching the Millennium Falcon or a Jedi unfurling his lightsaber for the first time or the big reveal of the bad guy. Those moments potentially could be quite downplayed and the magic that brought fans originally to those texts feels a little bit boring. But when it comes to what Lincoln calls transmedia storytelling, Fans are not only the biggest advocates of a franchise, they can also be its biggest critics. And that comes down to, again, this idea of authenticity. You know, fans seeking out the most authentic representation or recreation of these stories that they care deeply about. So for Lord of the Rings, Rings of Power, it didn't hit the mark in those aspects. Some moments got people excited. A young Galadriel, we get to see her character development. Problem, though, it doesn't quite fit with previous representations of that character, either in the books or even in the Peter Jackson trilogy, which actually has become this sort of standard version or this sort of legitimate adaptation that most Lord of the Rings fans compare things to. Game of Thrones, that's quite interesting, with House of the Dragon, based on a sort of history tome that Martin wrote as a filler to the backstory of the Targaryens, Yet he hasn't still finished the original Game of Thrones books, which does infuriate some fans. So actually, you're adapting a story that's not really finished yet. 
fans actually have to fill in the blanks themselves. Uh, one reason why they're perhaps more supportive of the House of Dragons adaptation is that it felt like, again, the original series. And because of that, they responded to it more positively than perhaps they did with Rings of Power. That leads to often the criticism about big franchises. It's like, well, they're not providing anything original. It's this constant return to what is familiar, what is safe, what is proven successful in the past. One of the reasons why Martin Scorsese was quoted as being very critical of the MCU is that it's not about original storytelling. It's just delivering big bangs and sort of roller coaster effects with no original storytelling. Some fans felt that was quite overly critical because it's based on comic books that have been producing original storylines for, for decades. Other fans, cinema fans more generally, felt that was a legitimate criticism because it falls into this idea that blockbusters are all about explosions rather than true storytelling. And again, it's a bit of a mixed bag for me. Transmedia stories, when they work, are about this sort of mapping out the universe, that immersive world. So it offers actually spaces for fans to enjoy and spaces where fans will not enjoy something. But because it's so big, it doesn't necessarily threaten or ruin the whole franchise. The sort of potential downside of streaming that we just get too tired of it. And then that specialness of when something new comes out is worn away. We're sort of used to it. It doesn't become that big, oh, we must watch this because it's on every week. One of the world's biggest and most successful brands for franchise is Disney, who in Lincoln's words, pretty much own everything now. In addition to their own world of productions, they've acquired rights to Marvel, to Star Wars and other epic material. This year, the brand will celebrate its 100th anniversary. Lincoln's been thinking about why it's such an enduring hotbed of fan communities across its many franchises. I think the popularity of certain characters, of course, and, and it's been very good at branding. You know, the Mickey Mouse icon has lasted for decades, draws people, particularly young people, into that magical fantasy world. One of the clever things about a place like Disneyland or Disney World is that it allows people to, albeit temporarily, feel as if they're part of that magic that they see on screen. Meet characters, potentially, around the corner, bump into Mickey on Main Street, USA, and feel part of that universe, albeit for a few hours in the day. And I think that's an interesting reason behind Disney's success is that they've not been scared to offer what you might call immersive experiences. They've imagined these fantasy magical kingdoms like you see at Disneyland, and they create a space where that feels real and that reality draws fans in and keeps them there and keeps them going back time and time again. And as the movies come out and new characters, particularly buying Star Wars characters and Marvel characters, they can be brought into those magical worlds and, again, gives you the chance to maybe bump into Iron Man at Disneyland, make that experience of seeing him on the big screen into a real experience about shaking his hand and having a picture taken with him. They're one of the first studios to work with television, which was seen as a competitor at the time. Disney actually thinks it is an avenue to spread the Disney brand even further. So creation of the Disney Club, Saturday morning TV, kids are watching TV. Well, why not put Disney in that space too? So they can adapt and serve different audiences. So they might not be going to the cinema. That's fine. We can catch them at home on TV. We can bring them to the theme park and you can meet Minnie Mouse or Mickey Mouse there. 
in the 80s you can go on a cruise cruise with pluto uh you know so did the disney brand absolutely becomes much more of a sort of multimedia brand and so as you said they have more versatility and the potential to last longer because they're in different pockets of entertainment and while we're talking about adaptation what's the future for the franchises we're hoovering up at the cinemas on our tv screens and in our shops today Hollywood is, uh, I teach students, this is, it works in cycles. And so if there is a period when people say, you know, that's enough Marvel for me, and the films start making not enough money for Disney to be happy with, and they perhaps start making them, then maybe in another lifetime or a generation's time, there'll be all of a sudden a reason to bring them back. So probably now the, the genie is far out of the bottle. So you can never get rid of the big fr- franchises, partly because as you said, streaming will keep them online forever. We could just go back and watch them again and again, relive the magic. The potential for new franchises can perhaps threaten to make audiences feel exhausted. So the desire to get another fantasy franchise like Amazon with its Wheel of Time series or with HBO and Game of Thrones or even Disney trying to bring back the Willow movie in a TV series format, perhaps... They won't be as big, but they keep the wheels churning. And ultimately, that's what Hollywood is about, defending and legitimating its business, creating movie content. Keeps people watching, maybe not in the massive droves. And that's partly what people thought about cinema after COVID. Would we return to cinemas again? I think that's, as we've seen with the recent decision at at Warner Brothers, to stick to making superhero films for the big screen, Hollywood still sees that as the paramount space for the movie blockbuster. And I think that won't change for a long time, despite streaming. Uh, you know, there were all these death knells of, of the end of the blockbuster. But it points to still the social aspect of going to see a movie. That's the magic around the big, big hits, is that you're enjoying it alongside complete strangers, laughing, gasping, screaming at the screen at the same time. You can recreate that at home, but the initial sort of interaction is is what the studios want. And until that dies, they'll keep producing it. Lincoln's next focus will be on how fans themselves are becoming part of the franchise machine. The next project I'm looking at is around Pokemon Go, one of my own sort of personal favorites, as I said, particularly looking at the relationship between players and YouTubers, the influencer on, on YouTube, how they are seen as perhaps big players they give hints, tips, you know, people follow them online, they watch their videos, but they're also part of what you might call the industry because they're sponsored more often than not. They are part of Niantic, who owns and operates Pokemon Go on on mobile phones. They are paid support in many ways. So there's a fine line between being a fan and being a paid fan. And I'm interested in that relationship, how the fan has become professional and part of the industry. They're not just the player They're the producer, they're the maker. Gives me a chance to play Pokemon Go and watch YouTube videos. (laughs) Nearly three years after it looked like COVID-19 had struck a death knell for cinema, the film franchise is alive and well. But not just because of the enduring power of the cinema to thrill us. Lincoln's work suggests that it's not just a great original text or source narrative that can stand the test of time, but the collective might of human imagination itself. Fans and fandom allow one person's stories to become those of a community and even of generations 
evolving with society to stand for values that we wish to explore, challenge, or reflect in the real world. The props of merchandise and iterations of transmedia storytelling mean that even in the absence of a movie, fans have new channels for creation and connection with their favourite alternate worlds and characters. It would be easy to dismiss the cult of franchises as a cynical money-making creation on behalf of film studios that wish to compete and survive. But this would be overlooking the real power of these machines to do good when interpreted on the individual and even societal level. And thanks to the unifying power of the digital realm, we can find comfort and commonality with other humans across the world, whatever environment we find ourselves living in. Pretty amazing stuff and pretty nice to think about during difficult times. So next time the world gets a bit heavy, just know you're not alone in digging into your favorite box set or movie trilogy to escape. You'll be in good company. You can read more about Lincoln's work at the University of Portsmouth website, port.ac.uk slash research. Thanks for joining us for Life Solved. There's loads more research insights to be found on our website, and you can also get news of the latest developments here at the university direct to your inbox. Just subscribe at port.ac.uk slash solve. We'll be back with another episode next Thursday. Catch you then.